God is good. All the time. Hey, I've been on vacation for a bit. It is good to be back with you. My normal rhythm of life is that I sprint 11 months a year and then take one month off. And so uh, I am back, ready to go, really excited about the summer and to see what God is getting ready to do here. A couple of things before we get going. First of all, we are going to begin to promote this service very specifically. I believe that what we do on Wednesday nights, which is a laid-back service of worship and word, I believe a midweek service like that is going to add great value to a lot of people's lives. It's just nobody does this service, and nobody does Wednesday night church anymore. And so I really think when we invite people, we're not competing with anything. We're kind of the only game in town, and I love going deeper. So what we have out in, on your way out, uh, Carrie will be at the table. We have some business-sized cards that are simply invitations to going deeper. And to help you with that, you'll be seeing some stuff on social media and all of that type of thing, inviting people specifically to our Wednesday service. Here's three things you can do to kind of help get going. Number one, if you see some people, how's this? If you don't see some people you used to see, reach out to them. Tell them we would love to have them back. I know we've got dozens of families who've been out with baseball, and that is all about to end. So we're going to have a whole lot of influx of young families coming in the next week or two. But if you haven't seen somebody in a while, reach out to them. Tell them you missed them. Number two, if you know somebody who loves Jesus, but you think they would connect well with the service, you're not asking them to stop going to church where they go or stop doing what they do. You're just saying, come and be a part of this. We think it would be a great thing. And thirdly, I just want to encourage you to just to make that commitment to be a part of what God is doing here. I believe that more than anything else that we have in the whole church, this is less of a worship service and it's more of a movement. And I believe that God has big plans for going deeper. And so lean in with me. Lean in with me. Finally, as people are moving in to the area, you're going to get new people at work, you're going to get new neighbors and all that. We wanted to provide you a way to welcome your new neighbors and to invite them to Christ Church. So the bookstore will be open after church. It's always open after services. And we've got a couple of things that we have put together that we think are pretty cool. First of all, this is a welcome basket. It's got an invitation to Christ Church. It's got a really cool Christ Church a steel mug here. It's just filled with a lot of really great, tasteful, high-quality things that people moving in. It's your way of saying, hey, we're glad to have you in the neighborhood. We also would like to invite you to Christ Church. Those things are all in the bookstore. If there's kids in the mix, we've got these in little sand pails, and they're just full of goodies, but it lets families know what is going on at Christ Church. These are things that you can just pick up in the bookstore, take them to somebody, and give them. We want to take the work out of it and just put you in a great position to evangelize. So that's what we've got coming up. Join me in prayer. Speak to us, Almighty God, through your word, because that's how you do it. Lead us along the path that leads to life. 
Open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits. That we may walk out of this place closer to you and closer to each other than we were when we walked in. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. After taking a break from our trail through Philippians for June, we're kind of again up and running. I can't tell you how good it is to be back. The honor of being your trail guide through the Bible every Wednesday is a privilege that I do not take for granted. And I'm deeply appreciative for all of you that are here, for all of you that join us online, for those of you at CM, I am deeply appreciative. Thank you. I want you to know that I covenant with you to do my very, very best to be worthy of your confidence and to do my very best to lead you well. Before my vacation, we stopped at chapter 3, verse 14. So I thought tonight we would pick up at chapter 3, verse 15. (laughs) Why? Because I'm clever that way. So let's quickly regain our bearing before we press on. You may even learn a little something here. The Bible contains 66 books. 39 of them reside in the Old Testament, which is written over the span of at least a couple of thousand years. Creation is the beginning of all things. Abraham lives about 2000 BC. David lives about 1000 BC. After that, kings and prophets duke it out for another 600 years, and then the whole thing flatlines for 400 years. The Old Testament world reaches from Mesopotamia all the way up and over the old fertile crescent from western Siv down through what we call the Holy Land down into Egypt. How many of you remember the cartoon Pinky and the Brain? One of the great cartoons ever made. What are we going to do tonight? Brain, what we do every night, Pinky, try to take over the world. So what really is happening during the Old Testament period, you have Mesopotamian superpowers du jour and the Egyptians down here, and they're constantly trying to take over their world. These folks fight with each other. When someone emerges, they get ambitious, and they want Egypt. In times that these folks are weakened and Egypt is weakened, this area, including Israel, gets stronger. So anytime you have Israel strong, it's because Mesopotamia and Egypt are weak. So during the time of Saul, during the time of David, during the time of Solomon, you have a weakened Mesopotamia and a strong Israel. If Jerusalem is the center of the world, if Jerusalem is the center of the world, it sits right here, then the Old Testament is Eastern in its orientation. So the Old Testament begins with Jerusalem East, all right? So where we think the Garden of Eden is, where we think a lot of early Genesis happened, doesn't happen in Israel. It happens in Iran and Iraq. So it's over there. This is an Eastern orientation in the Old Testament. The New Testament. Philippians is one of 27 books that comprise the New Testament. It's written in roughly a 50-year span within the unfriendly confines of the Roman Empire, which is basically the world surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, and to a lesser extent, the Black Sea. 
if Jerusalem is the center of the world, then the New Testament has a westward orientation. So Old Testament east, New Testament west. The Old Testament is sprawling. It's epic. It unfolds in an incredibly unstable world. And it seems like a new superpower is emerging every century or so. The New Testament is compact. It unfolds in a very stable world because the Romans rule this world during this time with an iron fist. Finally, the Bible geographically just generally geographically throughout the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, moves from east to west. So with that being said, let's grab our backpacks. Let's crack at it. Verse 15 and 16. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. When you study the Bible... You don't want to just run down the trail at a full sprint. Most people, when they read the Bible, go too fast. They go too fast because they're trying to get done. Can you imagine going on a beautiful, beautiful, iconic hike and doing it for speed? It would be insane. It would be insane. So you run the whole time. You don't even put your head up. That's not a hike. You're missing everything. So what I want to suggest to you is that you don't want to run down the trail of the Bible at a full sprint. You got to keep your footing so you don't injure yourself on one hand, and you got to keep your wits about you. You're going to get lost. So when Paul writes something like this, agree on these things, and you're presently unclear as to what these things are, you can't just press on. You have to double back. I remember math class, and I think it was algebra particularly. Anybody do well in algebra? Then we have nothing in common. So I remember in algebra, everything built on previous things. And yet I took algebra for speed. I just wanted to pass the class and get out of there. And so I would go on to the next section without fully understanding the section before. Guess where I ended up around halfway through the year? Uh, let's just say well under sea level, right? Uh, and I didn't have a way back. I was just lost. When you study the Bible, you need to make sure that you're on it, that you're paying attention. And, and when you go back, you seldom have to go back very far. In this case, you only have to go back two verses. This is what Paul wrote in 13b and 14. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. That is what we are needing to remember. Now, he's writing to mature believers. Teachers and tutors were held in high esteem in the Roman Empire. And in this passage, Paul is speaking to the experienced, the learned, the spiritually more mature in the church. I want to be very clear about something. Paul is not referring to how long someone has been a Christian. He's referring to how much progress they've made. Have you ever known anybody that's been a Christian for decades, but it's pretty clear they haven't made a lot of progress? And I know other people who haven't been a Christian very long, 
But man, they just kind of seem like they've just fast-tracked in a lot of ways. Paul's message is we don't have to agree on everything, but we do have to agree on the main things. And that would be my message to the American church today. We don't have to agree on everything, but we do have to agree on the main things. We, there's some things we're just going to have to be in agreement on. Uh, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, they would call that defending the faith. There's some things you just can't give away and still call yourself a Christian. So Paul writes, and he says, this is what we've got in front of us. And I'm writing to those of you who are mature, who are experienced, who are learned. His message is clear. He further instructs that the slow adopters would eventually come around. That's why we need to be patient with each other. How many of you would say patience is not your strong suit? Yeah. Uh, but how many of you would say your life has been positively impacted because someone was patient with you at some point in your life? I think we would all have to put ourselves there. So he, he believes that the slow adopters are eventually going to come around. But he also insists that the church doesn't give back the spiritual understandings they've already obtained. What he's saying is you just can't lose ground here. I believe the church has given away a lot of ground during my lifetime. I further believe that we need to take some of it back. Our message at Christ Church of biblical truth and Christian love will increasingly require us to stand firm on one hand and to stay in a good mood on the other. And has anybody ever noticed it's kind of hard to do both of those things? Uh-huh. I'm always wanting to stand in truth, but I always want to be in a good mood about it. But sometimes it's easier to stand in truth than it is to be in a good mood. And sometimes it's easier to be in a good mood than it is to stand in truth. So I just want to tell you, when Christ Church says to an increasingly, increasingly non-Christian culture, when we say we're going to stand in biblical truth, but we're going to stand here in Christian love, I just want you to know we've agreed to do something really hard. It's really, really hard. But it's also really, really important. And it's really, really powerful. Over my decades in ministry, I have learned that what makes people well will keep them well. And what makes people sick will make them sick again. Let me explain. I've seen God do incredible things in the lives of hundreds of people over the years. I've seen God absolutely turn lives around. Many of these folks had an incredible conversion or deliverance experience. And over time, God healed them and God restored them. And they're in. They're enthusiastic and they're in. And then it starts to happen. And like a train derailment, the sequence of events begins long before the train leaves the track. Sometimes as people get healthy again, they stop doing the things that made them well in the first place. And they begin slipping back into what made them sick. The first thing you find in Christianity is people start losing their enthusiasm. May I quote the Righteous Brothers? You've lost that loving feeling, whoa, 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 whoa. You could tell. They're just not as on fire for Jesus as they were. They've cooled off a bit. So they lose their enthusiasm. And then secondly, you kind of see them stop volunteering. And then they miss a Sunday, and then they miss two Sundays. And before long, you see less and less of them until you see nothing of them at all. 
Now, they're going to do fine for a while. You say, well, explain that. Easy. We all reap what we sow, but you don't reap today what you sow today. You reap today what you sowed yesterday. So let's imagine you've led a pretty rough, sinful, and irresponsible life, and then you accept Jesus. You're still going to have to reap some of what you sowed before you accepted Jesus. So things are probably going to be rough for a while. That's why when people first come to Jesus, they go, why is this so hard? Well, you didn't help things by sowing a whole lot of really crappy seed. And so you're just going to have to let that play out. But if you know you're sowing good seed today, then you know you've got something to look forward to tomorrow. So a lot of times people will lose their enthusiasm. They've gone to church. They've met Jesus. They've got their lives in a good place. And for a while after they quit church, they're just fine because they're reaping the stuff they sowed while they were in church. But after a while, that runs out. After a while, it runs out. And they're not sowing those good things. And that dries up. And they get sick again. You say, how often does this happen? Every time. Every time. If this describes you or someone you know, if you just feel that enthusiasm about Jesus just, just waning, if you used to get a lot of joy and and, and helping people and doing Jesus stuff, and now you're just not experiencing that joy. If you used to, couldn't wait for church, and, and now you have to talk yourself into going, you're in soul danger. That is a dangerous place to be. So here's what I want you to hear very clearly. What makes you well is what keeps you well. And if you go back to what made you sick, you will get sick again. To stay spiritually healthy, we have to continue to lean into forged core values. It's, it's where we are. I am going to say that if you are a mature Christian, and this is who Paul's writing to, you need to not only know what you believe, you need to know why you believe it. You need to know what those beliefs are based upon. You need to be able to defend those beliefs because if you start sharing Jesus, you're going to have to. Right? You're just going to have to. So... To stay spiritually healthy, we got to lean into these values. So the question we might ask is, is, what are the Christian values? Paul states this very clearly in 2 Corinthians. So let's just take a quick detour and take a look. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7, the core values of the countercultural church. This is what he says. These are our core values. This is what we need to lean into. Number one, he says, hold firm. Verse one, never give up what God has given you. Guys, if God has done something in your life, Satan wants to steal it. And he will if you let him. He will if you let him. He says, hold firm. Don't give up what God has given you. You see, moving forward in a fallen world is like running up a downward going escalator. The second you stop running, you're going the wrong direction. Over the years... I've lost hundreds of pounds. Is there anyone else who've lost hundreds of pounds over the years? If I had not gained any of that weight back, I would presently be invisible. <laughs> you know what I found? It's really hard to lose weight, but it's even harder to keep it off. You know, I remember the guy who said, it's easy to quit smoking. I've quit hundreds of times. Paul said, don't give back the spiritual ground you've taken. Don't give it back. Satan is always going to want it. 
Just think about a thief. Satan is a spiritual thief. He just walks up to you and says, give me, give me all the spiritual ground that you've taken. And we just give it to him. I think it's time that we just say to Satan, no. No. You get nothing from me. You get nothing. Not only that, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And you just go to hell where you belong. We need to stop getting our butts kicked eight days a week by Satan. And we need to hold firm. Number two, we need to operate with integrity. We reject all underhanded methods and tell the truth before God. Leaders and churches standing for God in a wicked world are always going to have our credibility attacked. Always. Our task is to make sure that those false accusations are not substantiated. Satan loves nothing more than a good church scandal. You, you ever figure what makes the, de- the demons party? I think church scandals. I think hell throws like a party when, when churches have scandals. You know, the reality is we need to conduct ourselves in such a way that we operate with great integrity, that we reject underhanded methods, that we are truthful. And you know what? It's kind of hard to tell people the truth sometimes because a lot of people don't like the truth. They just think they like the truth. But we need to tell the truth. We need to be honest. I have people ask me about things all the time. And about half the time, I know that what I'm telling them isn't what they wanted to hear. But I am telling them the truth. And that's just where I'm going to be on this. So we need to operate in integrity. Number three, we need to preach Christ. We need to preach Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus. Paul is the most successful missionary in the history of the world. But even Paul knew it wasn't about him. We don't preach pop culture, current events, partisan politics, or Shane Bishop here at Christ Church. We preach Christ and Christ alone. That's why, as odd as it sounds, I've never let people put my name on the sign out front. I've been here for 27 years, and I have never put my name on the sign out front. You want to know why? Because we are Christ church. I don't figure he needs a co-star. There's this absurd notion today that if you preach the gospel, you'll run everybody off. Flag. Flag. The surest way to run people off is to water down the gospel. Because when you water down the gospel, you're only offering human philosophy and a religious message of try harder to do better, and it doesn't work. The gospel of Jesus Christ has to be served 100 proof. No ice, no water, nothing taking the edge off of it. We've got to proclaim Jesus as Jesus is proclaimed in the Bible. We can accept Jesus or reject Jesus, but we don't get to culturally modify Jesus. We need to not be embarrassed about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we need to preach Christ crucified and resurrected and coming back again. If you look at the fate of American mainline denominations who have departed from Orthodox Christianity over the last 50 years, they are a shell of what they once were. Look it up. Run the numbers. Look at the Episcopals, the Lutherans, the UCC, the UMC. Look at the numbers, where they were 50 years ago and where they are now. They are a shell of what they were, all of them. When a church shifts its focus 
from preaching Christ to a cultural or political agenda, that church is dead already. Number four, we need to serve others. We need to serve others. We are your servants. A few years ago, at this service, I'm walking about. I really just kind of fly about before church, but I'm flying about, and somebody walked in, and they're just being funny. They go, Shane, you're a rock star. And this person was visiting and standing right next to me, and you could tell it just hit them terrible. And I can't tell you it hit me great. So uh, uh, I could tell they were kind of sick to their stomach a little bit. And, and they looked at me and they said, are you a rock star? And I said, I'm a servant. I'm just, I'm just a servant. Christian people are here to serve, not to be served. And again, the second we get thinking we're all that in a bag of communion wafers, we're a derailment in the waiting. Paul shook off rejection endured ridicule, refused entitlement, survived beating after beating in his service to the people of Jesus Christ. Jesus said those wishing to be great in the kingdom must be the servants of all. When Jesus was asked to demonstrate greatness, he got out a basin and a towel and he washed the feet of his disciples. If your idea of Christianity involves entitlement, getting proper credit, serving your personal preferences, or weeding, wielding power, your gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're servants here. Number five, shine a light. But this precious treasure, this light and power that shine within us is held in the clay pots of our perishable bodies. I really like baseball cards of Hall of Fame players from the 30s through the 60s. When I get a really good card, I slab it in this thick plastic screw down, ultra violet resistant protector, and then I put it on display somewhere. I'm not the kind of guy that has a lot of stuff in boxes. That feels like an episode of Hoarders to me. I just like to have out what I have. Somebody said to me once, how many baseball cards do you have? I said, oh, about 200. They looked disappointed. I said, but they're 200 really good ones. As the years roll on, my protectors get a bit beat up. But the cards inside stay absolutely as pristine as they were when I got them. Christ church is the container, and the gospel of Jesus is the card. Our task is to let the perfect Jesus who resides in our beat-up container be clearly seen by all. I want to be very clear about something. No pastor is perfect. No church is perfect. No Christian is perfect, but Jesus is. We are a clay pot. And if you've spent your life looking for the perfect church, I have terrible news for you. The second you show up, you'll ruin the whole thing. And so will I. We are not the priceless treasure. The Jesus who lives in us is the treasure. We need to shine the light. And then number six, just be a witness. This way, people can clearly see that anything good we do comes from God. When we remember it's not about us, when we get passionate about our mission, when we turn up the power and light, when we effectively disseminate the gospel, the, the world's going to know that what we do comes from God. The church does not exist to do good. The church exists to connect people to Jesus. That being said, we're going to do a lot of good. 
dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of children in East St. Louis will start back to school this year with brand new clear backpacks and supplies because of the backpack attack we are running this summer. Our goal was 150 filled backpacks. Uh, We've been doing this one week. You guys have already covered 90 of them. Praise God. That is a way that we offer witness to our faith and to our beliefs. Local food pantries are going to be stocked for the summer because thousands of items came in from Christ Church in our food drive. We get letters all the time about how that we are the biggest givers to the food pantry. Thank you so much. You know what? We don't get a semi-truck and drive it over there. All of you bring a few canned goods, and there's a whole lot of us. And we're able to do some pretty incredible things. You see, we are changing the narrative about what a church can be. Did you guys know that there are Sundays and Wednesdays when we announce to people that if you're going through a tough time financially, stop by Reverend Carmen's office because we've got a $100 grocery card for you, or we've got a $100 gas card for you. How many churches give money away? We want to change the narrative. We want people to see that we are witnesses, not only with what we say, but we're also witnesses in how that we live. We're challenging the narrative about what a church can be. And we're making an undeniable witness that what we do for people, we do to honor God. As a leader of this church, I often lean back into our core values when times get challenging or turbulent. And I'm going to be really, really honest. The state of our culture today is more anti-traditional Christianity than it's been at any point in my lifetime. There's just no doubt about it. There is a strong anti-Christian bias that is permeating everything that I see. It seems like at times everybody's values are defended except Christian values which seem to get pushed and violated all of the time. So during those difficult times, when things are challenging or turbulent, when I have to remind myself to stand firm and stay in a good mood, and I don't know about you, but it's easier for me to stand firm than stay in a good mood. I have to work on the good mood part. I do. That's why I've taught myself to smile. Look. Right? I got to work on it. And if you ever wonder when things get turbulent, Or if things get turbulent around here, I'll just give you one example. 2019 through 2022, things were pretty turbulent. I look at what was happening in the larger culture. Things are just turbulent. It's not easy to stand as a traditional Christian these days. So here are seven statements that we set to guide us as the new Christ Church when we disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church a couple years ago. These are things that help guide us when the trail gets difficult, when the Directions seem unclear. When the storms are pounding, we got to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. These are our core values here. If you're new to the church, I want you to hear this. Number one, we will effectively connect people with Jesus Christ. That is the only reason that we exist. It's all that we do. And we're going to do it effectively. Everybody with me there? I don't plan to do a lousy job at this. We're going to do it really, really well. But this is our sole mission. Number two, we will stand unwavering in biblical truth. We're just not going to give. Not going to give. 
We're just going to stand unwavering. Number three, we will maintain a winsome spirit of Christ-like love. We're going to stay in a good mood about this. We are not going to let the world charge us with a false narrative that Christians are haters. Wrong. Flag. And we need to make sure that if they're watching us, they see nothing but love coming out of us. Number four, we will embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the reality is living for Christ in turbulent times is really, really hard. And it was for the Philippians as well. And that's why we need to constantly lean into the power of the Holy Spirit and stop trying to do everything in our own strength. A lot of Christians are just a little Holy Ghost intolerant. Holy Ghost comes around, they start getting like career-ending stomach cramps or something. I, I just want to tell you, we need to embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, we don't have chance in this world. We don't have chance. Number five, we will be committed to authentic Christian community. We all come from different places. We all have different stories. I value your story. I value your journey. I can learn about Jesus from you. And maybe you can learn about Jesus from me. We will be committed to authentic Christian community. We are all different. We come from different places. But Jesus gives us more in common than anything else ever could. Number six, we will celebrate a ministry of remembering. Let me explain that to you if you're new. For me, remember is the opposite of dismember. If you dismember, you rip apart. If you remember, you put back together. We need to be a community that's interested in remembering people. Because this world is really good at tearing people apart. And a lot of people are looking for a community where they can heal. And it's going to have to be a safe community. And unlike the narrative of this world... Safety doesn't mean everything goes. Safety means that we are going to protect you. No law isn't safe. But standing on God's word is a safe place. And when we stand there in love, church should always be a wonderful place for sinners to be kept safe so they can figure things out. So we're going to celebrate a ministry of remembering. You may have some people and you say, I'm I just uncomfortable in inviting them to church because they just don't seem like church material. I got great news for you. Almost everybody in America that appears to be church material has already been invited a thousand times. It won't help to invite them. We need to start inviting people that don't look like church material at all. We need to start inviting people who really need what Jesus has to offer. And Maybe we're just, I'm not saying don't invite your, your next door neighbors. I, I'm just saying, don't rule people out because you think they'll say no. Don't rule them out because you think they'll say no. Go ahead and give them an invitation. Who knows? Who knows what God will do? So let's close with four things that Paul said in our verses today that we have to agree upon to be a vital and healthy church. Because those of you that may be kicking the tires and kind of thinking about Christ church, I just want you to know, I'm committed to being a vital and a healthy church. I'm not committed to being a perfect church because there's no way to do that. We'll just drive ourselves insane. But what I am committed to do is to be vital and to be healthy. So for some of you tonight, what I'm about to share, these four things, I just, they're going to be a word from the Lord for you. And I'm going to present them. 
Uh, so, points of agreement. Number one, forget the past. Let it go. Let it go. And some of you are hurting right now to even hear those words. Because you've been dragging around bitterness and hatred from your past for so long, you're not even sure how you'd live without it. Let it go. Some years ago, I ran into a guy who had stopped attending our church in a grocery store. He saw me and tried to avoid me, but it was really too late for that. In case, in case you're ever trying to avoid me, if I see you first, just give up. I'm going to find you. <laughs> so I looped around the canned goods, and uh, next thing he knew, he popped out. Bam, I'm just standing right there grinning at him. I smiled. I said, man, we sure have missed you in church. And it just lit him up. <laughs> it just lit him up. He was just unloading on me. He's telling tell me what a horrible church we had, how horrible I was. And he just went on and on. And he got done. And he said, I have been so disappointed by the church. I don't think I'll ever return. And then I asked if he was done. And anytime you ever yell at me when I ask if you're done, that means I'm about to start. And so I just asked if he was done. And he said he was. And I simply said, Captain, anytime I say captain, terrible things come out next. I said, Captain, if I quit attending church every time I was disappointed, I'd quit about three times a week. Just think how bad you're disappointing me now. And he laughed, and I laughed, and we parted ways. Uh, moral of the story, until you can make peace with your disappointments of the past, you're going to have no future. And you say, well, how can I forgive people? There's two ways. Number one, you need to remember Christ has forgiven you. Nobody would pray the Lord's Prayer if they really thought about it. Forgive us our trespasses. Can I get into a little syntax? To the extent that we forgive those who trespass against us. When we don't forgive, we're asking God not to forgive us. Let it go. Forget the past. You can do that because you have been forgiven. And then the other thing, I'm going to push on this a little bit. Yeah, you've had people hurt you. Let me ask you a question. Who here has not hurt somebody? May I quote a little bit of Jesus? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, you've been hurt. I get it. I bet you've hurt people too. You want to be forgiven? Might want to forgive them. And forgiving people doesn't mean you have to barbecue. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Amen. Doesn't mean you got to hang out. There's a lot of people you don't need anywhere near you. You just need to wish the best for their soul and pray that Jesus does something with their lives. Somebody said something to me years ago, and I've never forgotten it. They said, being a Christian is reminding yourself every day that you can't tell a single soul in the world to go to hell. You have to wish and hope for their best. Doesn't mean you got to be around them. Doesn't mean you got to invite them to your house. Doesn't mean you got to be re-entangled in their lives. But it does mean that you can't have hatred toward them. And you have to pray that Jesus touches their heart in some way. Forget the past. Let it go. Let it go. Nobody can drive. Nobody can walk forward up a mountain, turned around, looking backward. It's just too dangerous. Let it go. Number two, look forward. How's that? Look forward. 
Adopt a future orientation. Let me tell you how to do that. Functionally, functional and emotionally healthy people have an ability to play the cards they have in their hands. They just have an ability to play the cards they have in their hands. I do not notice that functional and emotionally healthy people have it any better than dysfunctional and unemotionally healthy people or emotionally unhealthy people. I don't notice that their circumstances are any better. And a lot of times I don't notice their circumstances are different at all. Emotionally healthy and functional people, they've had bad things happen to them too. They've had disappointment too. They've just learned to play the cards that are in their hand. Unhealthy people spend their time lamenting the cards in their hand and envying the cards held by others. Healthy people have become have this ingrained optimism that offers a future orientation. You say, well, how can I be positive about the future? How's this? When we believe that if we do the right things the right way, that we will get the right results in the right time, we can have a healthy future orientation. If we believe that no matter how bad life is today, if we start sowing good seed, we will look forward to a good harvest in the future, we can have a healthy future orientation. We need to think different. And we need to look forward. I think this orientation summed up in one of my all-time favorite axioms. I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. And I think if we could apply that to our spiritual lives, you know, I'm battling today, but tomorrow is going to be better. I was going deeper tonight, and I got a hold of one or two things from the text that I think are going to change my life. And they're going to change the seeds that I'm sowing. And because I'm sowing good seed, I have reasonable expectation that I am going to reap good things in the future. That's how you turn it around. Number three, press on toward the finish line. One of the things I love about competition is you either get it done or you don't. Let's take the St. Louis Cardinals. Not getting it done. Why? Who cares? Seriously, who cares? Not getting it done. Not getting it done. Either get the big hit or you don't. Either nail the recital or you don't. Either close the deal or you don't. A very successful person was once asked the secret to his success. He replied, I make good decisions. The inquirer followed up, how did you learn to make good decisions? And he replied, by learning from bad decisions. I believe perseverance and endurance to be two of the most underrated leadership skills on the planet. Of all the things I was taught growing up, few have rang truer than this. Quitters never win. I've not seen a single time that's been violated. Quitters never win. You want Satan to dominate you? Just stop praying. Stop attending church. Quit giving. Quit serving. Quit witnessing. Lose that loving feeling. Whoa, 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 whoa. And it will happen in no time. You want to win this thing? Keep praying. Keep attending. Keep giving. Keep serving. Keep witnessing. Even when it's hard. Even when you don't feel like it. Keep doing the right things the right way in belief that you will get the right results in the right time. It is not a matter of feeling. It is a matter of faith. And then finally... Receive the prize. 
One consistent theme in the Old and New Testament is the wicked will be punished. How's that? You know, God's a merciful God. How many of you are reading the Old Testament with us right now? God is a merciful God. Read the prophets. God's mercy is reserved only for the repentant. And the mercy of God is shown by offering everyone an opportunity to repent. God's mercy is never shown to the unrepentant sinner once in the entire Bible. The mercy of God has given us a chance to repent. The mercy of God has forgiven us when we do, restoring us when we do. And one of the themes is the unrepentant will be punished. And the repentant and the righteous will be rewarded. I want to be very clear about something. The ultimate reward of the Christian faith is not what God can do for you. It's a relationship with God himself. I think the old hymn writer nailed it. And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. One of the great stories in the Bible is Enoch. He went on a walk with God one day. And the text basically says, and then he wasn't. (laughs) He just was on a walk with God. And God just brought him unto himself. If you live for Jesus, are you going to have a better life? Absolutely. Is your life going to be filled with purpose and peace and passion and power? Absolutely. But that's not the biggest reward. Those are byproducts. The greatest thing about Christianity is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are offered an opportunity to have our sins forgiven and to initiate an eternal relationship with our creating God. It is that relationship that sustains us. It is that relationship that gives us life. It is that relationship that breathes into us. When Paul quoted the poets, he said, In him I live and move and have my being. That's where we want to be. Not just focusing on God when we come to church or have a devotion. We, we want to be swept up in this thing. We want to live close to God. We want to live close to the heart of God. If you're traveling a desolate or discouraging piece of highway right now, be encouraged. Be encouraged. You say, why? Well, first of all, you're here. Did you know that's a good sign? Because if God weren't wanting you, you wouldn't be wanting God. You're here. That's good. You see, I believe God has not brought you this far to leave you. It's just not who God is. You say, God's done a lot of things in my life, but I'm not feeling it right now. Who stinking cares what you feel? It's not about how we feel. It's about what Christ has done. Love's a whole lot bigger than feeling. God's not brought you this far to leave you. Hear me. Your journey's only beginning. And number two, the finish line and the prize that awaits you is far closer than you could possibly imagine. Dear friends, don't 
give up now. The finish line is closer than you can imagine.